everyone. My name is Reese Karolinski, and this is Young History, episode 127 on Guatemala. The capital of this country is Guatemala City, and to explain the name, it actually has to go back to the Mayan language, which is only a few centuries ago, which isn't what people usually think when they think of Maya. They always think it's super ancient. It's not. The Aztecs, the Maya, all of them were around this region of the world in South America and Central America around the same time that different Spanish empires were ruling, that the modern royal families were being established. It's nothing that old. Yes, it's old. It's way older than any of us and anyone in our family, but it's not ancient times. So that's the thing to keep in mind. With that being said, the name comes from the Mayan language, specifically the one called Nahuatl. They use the word Guajatamalan, meaning place of many trees. Now, some also believe the name comes from the word Guajatismal, which means mountain that leaks water. Both of these make sense for the basis for the name, which eventually becomes Guatemala once kind of going through the Spanish pipeline and coming out influenced. But we're going to get into some other facts and we'll get into history. So the major fact is that Mayans still exist today. They are 43% of the population and they are the second largest indigenous population in the Americas behind Bolivia. Locals here will also claim that chocolate originated in Guatemala. Chocolate was used here as early as 6 CE by the Mayans, who actually called it Zocoroto. But the main export today is coffee. The textile creation culture is huge in Guatemala because Maya women use textiles to tell stories and make art. And this is the reason that Guatemala is a world leader in blue denim production. Another Guatemalan specialty is the repurposing of American yellow school buses. These school buses are auctioned off once they hit around 150,000 miles and aren't quite deemed high quality enough to be used for public transport in schools in the U.S., So many of them are auctioned off and then driven down to Guatemala and repainted with different colors of the rainbow and different Guatemalan colors. Bus drivers then use these repurposed buses as affordable transportation for people of Guatemala City and other neighboring cities. And our final fact is that Tikal, which is a Maya settlement that was created in Guatemala, was actually the first cultural and natural world heritage site marked by UNESCO because most places are marked as one or the other. This one was the first one marked as both because not only is it a natural phenomenon for the location it is and what that land meant to the people, but it is also cultural because it connects back to Mayan culture. And with all that being said, that's going to get us to where I want to start this thing. So I'm not going to dilly-dally any longer. We went very deep on this history, so Guatemala is going to be one you're going to have to strap in for because we got a lot of little nuances and things like that. So even though it's not a super long timeline compared to some of the other countries we've done, it's still going to be a doozy. So lock in with me here. But with that being said, I am going to say one more time, my name is Reese Garlinski. This is Young History, and this is Guatemala. You guys enjoy. Our origins begin when the first people arrived here around 3000 BC. They arrived after the last ice age and this was when they started to use agricultural practices because any people that may have passed through the land before, we don't have any record of because they were hunter-gatherers, they didn't live long, and they also didn't have any language or anything to leave behind. There was just stone weapons they used and things of that sort. And the depth of knowledge and the way people lived really doesn't get deep until 1000 BC and that's because That was when the pre-classic Maya arose in the region. The Maya had their own written language and great irrigation system. Both of them stood the test of time. The Maya had layered government systems and a ritual that is still observed as part of the regional culture today. And that is the reason there are certain dances in Guatemala. Different things we'll get into later. 
The pre-classic Maya lasted until around 250 BC, where they disappeared without a trace. And today, it is still one of history's biggest mysteries. And the reason I'm saying it so quick is because they just disappeared. There's nothing. The things they built were still here. The different settlements were still here, but the people were gone. And this isn't the only time it happens. In the 500 years between 250 BC and 250 CE, different people groups passed in and out of here, and there was different influence from northern groups like the Aztec and the Inca. But the thing that is most important to our story today is the return of the Maya in 250 CE, which begins the classic Maya period. It was during this period that the Maya established systems of math, a calendar, art, and even more. The greater Maya region was not united, and fights over land and resources were common between different sects of the empire. The Maya reached their peak in the 500 CE, where they built the famous structures and systems that we recall today. One major cultural practice was done to honor the Mayan gods. This was called blood sacrifice. The practice was done on top of the Mayan-built pyramid structure, Tikal. Prisoners of war and sometimes criminals would have their hearts cut out and offered to the gods. One of the most significant creations was the city of Caminal Uyu. Today, Guatemala City stands on top of where this was built. The Maya also had one of the most well-founded math systems in the world. They also created a clock that was able to tell time well before industrialization ever happened. And I previously mentioned a calendar, and the thing with this was that this calendar was very unique, and it also predicted that the end of the world would come in the year 2012 CE. The complexity and intellect of the Maya made people genuinely believe this prediction until the end of 2012, because people always thought that the world was going to end on the year they predicted. But there's also other cultural things I want to get into because the Maya left an influence that still lasts to this day. The food of Guatemala, especially corn, was grown and consumed as a cornerstone of the Maya diet. Today, Guatemala is very Catholic, but the beliefs around Catholicism are viewed through a Maya lens, where the belief in spirits and morale are the most important. Weaving was a huge part of classic Maya culture and is still practiced widely in Guatemala today. Modern Maya women are taught to weave from an early age to make cloth as a way to express themselves and to create art. Despite the complexity and wide range of Maya cities, they were abandoned in the 8th and 9th century. The people of Maya descent were still in the region, but the grandiose cities were left behind, and to this day, nobody knows why this happened. They abandoned these huge structures like Tikal, different cities that were flourishing and doing very well. It's just hard to imagine why it happened, but... Many people predict that it was a thing with overpopulation and there was clashes with local powers that made people of lower class and less riches want to flee to save themselves from war. But these are all just predictions. These are all just shots in the dark and things that people can kind of prove. At the end of the day, it doesn't really explain it. But to bounce back into the next steps in history, the Spanish actually arrived in the 1500s. The first ship was captained by Pedro de Alvarado, and the Spanish were controversial to the Maya. Some clans allied with the Spanish against their local enemies, and this opened the region up to trade, which contributed to the Colombian exchange. The Maya that did this were able to show off how great they were at growing cotton and salt, and they were also very good at harvesting obsidian and spices in the region. So this is what they traded away to the Spanish, and it's what brought a lot of weapons and things into them, and it was going good for those that traded with Spain. But there was an opposite side of things. The catchy people fought against Spain God. The Quechi people fought against Spain very hard. The Quechi were led by Tecun Uman, who used guerrilla warfare tactics against Spain. For his leadership until death, he is now seen as a national hero. The death of Uman allowed Spain to conquer the region in 1523. Spanish diseases and constant raids contributed to the Spanish victory. Pedro de Alvarado was the leader of the colonization effort. 
Even as a leader in the 1500s, though, Alvarado was seen as specifically cruel and barbaric because the way he treated the Maya and any other people that were here was especially terrible. He was abusive. He saw them as no more than a tool to use, and it was very gross. So, And that's saying something, too, because when you're alive in the 1500s where we're seeing the onset of slavery, colonization, people being abused, and you somehow stand out from the basic level of being a bad person into a new level of abusive and terrible, like, it's just unexplainable. And during the early Spanish rule, a man rose to power and prominence in the region named Bartolome de Alcasas. He was a devout Catholic clergyman who was disgusted by the way that the Spaniards were treating the indigenous peoples and the way that they forced Christianity upon them. Bartolome preached tolerance and kindness as the true ways to spread the word of God. His beliefs spread to the people, and better relations were pursued with the indigenous Maya that remained in the land. Spanish rule was categorized by infrastructure development and the spread of Catholicism. However, this region wasn't heavily developed and didn't have a great resource to capitalize on like other places in the region did. Spain used the lands to grow cacao and indigo. Spanish rule used indigenous people and then enslaved Africans as the labor force to continue to grow parallel with what was going on. The Spanish also created a hierarchical class system that held Spanish-born landowners as the most significant people. Under them was the Criollos, which were Spaniard-born people in Guatemala. The Criollos made their money by taking advantage of the Ladinos as their workforce. The Ladinos were mixed people. The very bottom of the class system was the indigenous people who were seen as less intelligent and more valuable as a labor source. And of course, this is just how the Spanish system viewed them, and it was the onset of the Maya people and people who were not considered pure-blooded to get very resilient and stand up against all that was going on. Despite this ranking, the Maya did maintain some level of autonomy under Spanish rule because they were able to run villages of their own without much interference from Spain, especially in the West Coast. The 1800s saw Spain lose its position as the world power above all others, and this caused them to lose grip on their new world colonies. And it was the Creolos that made up a majority of the support for independence. They advocated that Spain was abusive of its power over the region and that people of Guatemala should not stand for this. Independence was officially declared in Guatemala in 1821. From independence in 1821 to the year 1823, Guatemala was part of the Mexican Empire. Independence did not create much change for Guatemala in its early years because the systems from the colonial past were kept in place almost to a T. So the social hierarchy still felt very similar. Guatemala felt that the culture and style of government between Mexico and themselves was too different, so they declared themselves independent from Mexico in 1923. Guatemala led the effort to create the United Provinces of Central America after they broke away from Mexico. As part of this union, Guatemala continued to encroach on the rights of the indigenous Maya. The time under the union also created the first split between conservatives and liberals in Guatemala. The conservatives were heavily supported by the Catholic Church and represented the landowning class. This meant that the country benefited from a union of the elite in Central America. The liberals represented the complete opposite. They believed that the elite was very abusive and money-hungry, so they supported independence from the union. Rafael Correra was a Guatemalan pig farmer that rose up in politics because of his relatability to the working class and those that felt the unprivileged struggles he came with. He became the first president of Guatemala in 1844. Correa was a conservative that enacted many changing policies to Guatemala. He sold Belize to Britain as part of an agreement that would connect Belize City to Guatemala City with a bridge. This bridge would have helped Guatemala 
get access to the Caribbean, but the bridge was never built and Guatemala was left empty-handed. Justo Rufino Barrios was a liberal president that ruled after Correa from 1873 to 1885. His administration famously partitioned lands away from the indigenous Amerindians and took property from the church. He created a modern education system and attempted to make it secular. He also approved the construction of railroads nationwide. He modernized the roads and expanded the banking system. He also opened Guatemala up to the global coffee trade. Coffee eventually became the main export of Guatemala. His biggest mistake as president was trying to reform the Union of Central America. Honduras agreed to rejoin this union, but El Salvador did not. Barrios attempted to annex both of these countries in 1885. This was a horrible mistake for him because he was actually killed on the battlefield during the Battle of Chalcuapa. In the decade after the death of Barrios, the country fell into a weird place. The elite became very privatized as a few families started to own most of the land. These families then bribed politicians and swayed the government in their favor, and this caused the middle and lower classes to resent the top of their society. Manuel Estrada Cabrera was president from 1898 to 1920. He was seen as an authoritarian for his policies. He used his presidential power to expand the government in ways such as urbanization and education. However, his achievements came at the cost of the people. Specifically, indigenous people were targeted by his administration and were abused or removed from their land in order to expand the government and the economy. And this started the strike of sorrows in 1920. The students from San Carlos University hid their identity and marched through the streets of Guatemala City to protest the abuse of government. Other college towns started to unite behind this cause and amassed. One week before the Good Friday celebration, they started a parade to challenge the government. This became known as the Parade of Fools and is now a cultural tradition in Guatemala that happens every year. And in its original setting, this was done to challenge the government with a massive showing of support for the people from the people. Today, it is done to acknowledge the hard history of Guatemala and symbolize the need for solidarity and change no matter where the country is at. And bouncing back just a little, in 1917, an earthquake hit Guatemala City that shook the country to its core, and the recovery efforts from it were so very weak that it made Cabrera look very bad. So all of this coincided with the parade protests that happened in 1920. In that same year, the Unionist Party was established, and it was created as a consolidation of all conservative power to challenge the president. The Unionists started their campaign against Cabrera by deeming him mentally unfit to rule the country. This was followed by calls for Cabrera to step down from the presidency. He refused to do this, and this caused conservatives to unite their forces against them and push the country into a mini-civil war. This became known as the Tragic Week in April. It was a week-long clash in April of 1920 that resulted in the end of Cabrera's rule. Jorge Ubico ended the decade of instability after Cabrera was ousted in 1920. He became president in 1931. He remained the president of Guatemala until 1944. Ubico mirrored the rule that the former president had in many ways. He was a staunch opponent of the opposition and did not give them any liberties. However, he was also very hard on his own government officials and wanted them to end any internal corruption. One of his main policies involved members of the government reporting their assets and income before taking their position and after they left it. This was done to encourage transparency on whether or not the government officials were embezzling money or being bought. The kicker with this was that it was actually Ubico who did not comply to the doctrine himself and used the presidency to buy land and get rich, which is embezzlement. In 1944, a peaceful protest was ended with the murder of its leader, Maria Chinchilla Lichinos. This was met with massive backlash against the government and a general strike occurred nationwide. The strike caused Ubico to relinquish the presidency. 
However, Ubigo tried to remain present in politics. The people did not stand for this, and in October of 1944, soldiers and students united their power to storm the palace in Guatemala City. They came together and forced Ubigo into exile. The resistance mounted against Ubigo resulted in the start of the Guatemalan Revolution. The revolution lasted from 1944 until 1955. It was started to change the rules of the dictatorial leaders that had always taken power in Guatemala and also to bring power back to the people. However, things were very shaky for Guatemalan economics and politics for this time period, so not a lot of success was found until later on. Juan José Arivalo was the first democratically accepted president in ages. He was in office from 1945 to 1951. He enacted some very serious changes in the country. He was the president that started the Social Security Program in Guatemala. He established the Indigenous People's Bureau so that Indigenous people could have a voice in the government. And he also gave women the right to vote officially in 1946. Jacobo Arbenz succeeded Arevalo as president when he was elected. He held this position until 1954. He was the front man for redistribution efforts nationwide. He attempted to give land to the peasant class and make them into farmers so that the nation would become more agrarian. The United Fruit Company, which had established a tight foothold in Guatemala, did not approve of this policy. The company was owned by the United States, so in order to get what they wanted, the United States used the CIA to fabricate a reason for a coup d'etat. The coup d'etat occurred in 1954 and ousted our from the presidency. The CIA approved Carlos Castillo Armas to replace Arbenz in 1954. This was the onset of violence and military power being used as a political force in Guatemala and in neighboring nations. Because up to this point, it was more of a military protects the people, and as we saw with the Guatemalan Revolution, was used in part for protest, but was never used purely to oust someone and take military power and give it to a junta. The intervention of the U.S. and the CIA and the placement of Armas as president was the onset of this without a doubt. The Armas presidency was mainly categorized by his staunch support for any policies regarding the United States. His policies heavily benefited the U.S. and aligned Guatemalan interests with that of the states. The backlash from Armas's presidency directly led to the start of the Guatemalan Civil War in 1960. He attempted to hold power longer than he was supposed to. So, in 1957, this led to a severe backlash against his rule. The resistance was so very radical that he was actually assassinated in this same year. The person who assassinated him was a member of the Guatemalan army. So, the Guatemalan Civil War started in 1960 and lasted all the way until 1996. So, any dates I say up until that point are happening in the country while the Civil War is happening across it. The war officially started when four members of the army joined the Workers' Party of Guatemala to form the rebel armed forces known locally as FAR. The Workers' Party of Guatemala was a communist organization, so this was concerning for not only the Guatemalan government, but also neighboring nations, such as the United States. The civil war that happened was categorized by military violence equating to little bits of political change here and there. All of the presidents that were able to gain power in this time did so through the backing of the military or through assassinations. The Civil War is one of the worst to occur in the 20th century. The war killed so many innocent civilians that the numbers can't even begin to cover it. The reports on deaths are so spread out that I'm only going to give you the rough estimate, which is at least 200,000 dead Guatemalans were caused by this war. The main atrocity of the war was the indiscriminate violence against the indigenous Amerindian people and their homes. 15,000 people of indigenous descent were killed from 400 different tribes and clans in just a few months under the presidency of Efrain Rios Montt. Rios Montt established the civil defense patrols, which were an arm of the secret police that marched through Guatemalan cities and enforced 
quote-unquote rule of law. They did this to any people who were seen as enemies of the state, and it was so bad. People were tortured, killed, and or exiled if they exhibited any traits that mirrored support for communism. They also challenged anyone who stood up against the government in general, and if anyone mentioned the word coup, revolt, anything, they could also be tried, arrested, and killed as well. This became such a big issue that huge advocacy movements were led against the Guatemalan government by indigenous people. One of the famous people who led one was Rigoberto Menchu. Rigoberto Menchu organized protests and challenged the government to change the laws around indigenous peoples. She also advocated for the acknowledgement of the indigenous murders by the government. She eventually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1992 for her efforts towards humanitarianism. During the war, there was a lot of policies made against lower class people surrounding elections. Policies such as literacy testing were implemented in Guatemala to prevent certain people from voting. Literacy testing was such a controversial enactment because it prevented at least 70% of Guatemalans from voting. The Civil War was at its worst in the 1970s when people were killed or stripped of their rights. On top of this, an earthquake hit in 1976 that displaced around 1 million people from their homes in Guatemala. Eventually, a coalition of forces came together in the 1980s. It was called the Guatemalan Revolutionary National Unity, or URNG. They fought across the nation and found a lot of success against the military because they used guerrilla fighting tactics to challenge the much larger military. And since there were so many different coalition forces in this one group, that their overall skills as guerrilla fighters just rose each other up. The abuses from the government became internationally judged for the first time in 1986. This same year, the United States pulled all military support for Guatemala out, and this led to the election of Vinicio Serrazo. During the same time, we have to talk about Myrna Mack. She was a political journalist that shed light on the murders of indigenous people done by the government throughout the Civil War. She became very famous for this, but that made her a lot of enemies, some of them within the government. In 1990, she was assassinated by stabbing, and not long after, the colonel of the military, Juan Carencia Osorio was found guilty of ordering the hit. Because of all the turmoil President Cerezo brought, he was pushed out of office in 1993, and a transitional government was created to finish his term. Alvaro Arzu was elected in 1996, and he worked alongside the URNG to pursue peace in the nation. This led to the end of the Civil War. President Arzu and the URNG created a firm and lasting peace agreement, which was the actual title. One of the most important doctrines of the peace deal was that anyone in the rebel force could acquire farming land if they gave up their weapons and pledged themselves to peace. Alfonso Portillo was president from 2000 to 2004. He was ousted for embezzling money and eventually arrested in 2013 in the United States. Oscar Berger was president from 2004 to 2008. He was one of the more stable presidents for a time because he accepted the creation of the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, known in short as CSIG. This was a UN-sanctioned organization that was created to investigate corruption allegations against the political officials in Guatemala. Outside of this, President Berger really didn't achieve much, but he also managed to not do too many things that sent the country into spiral. So, he's considered average at best, but meaningless at worst. Alvaro Colón was president from 2008 to 2012. He was also a president that ran a minimalist government so that he couldn't be accused of much. However, he did face accusations of corruption and embezzlement for his family. At the end of his presidency, he attempted to go around the government a lot. Specifically, he tried to dodge on a law that stated members of the same family could not be the successor to the current president. 
Cologne attempted to work around this by divorcing his current wife in the lead-up to the elections so that she could become a valid candidate. Despite this, she was denied access to becoming a legal candidate by the government, and the divorce was for nothing. Otto Perez Molina was president from 2012 to 2015. He was a general in the Rios Mont's army during the indigenous abuses. During his presidency, the military killed seven and wounded 40 people during an anti-mining protest, and Molina turned a blind eye to this, which met great backlash from the people, but nothing was done to hold him accountable. In 2015, the CSIG organization revealed that dozens of government officials were guilty of corruption and embezzlement. Protests began to rock the nation as the Guatemalan public called for the resignation and arrest of these government members. Over the next year, people would be arrested and the protests would continue. President Molina was one of the government officials arrested, and he is still in custody to this day. Jimmy Morales was a famous comedian and actor in Guatemala, and he ran on a campaign of anti-corruption, and this earned him the presidency from 2016 to 2020. CSIG eventually investigated Morales and found him guilty of money laundering to his family. Once the investigation got deeper on Jimmy, he started to advocate for the end of CSIG in Guatemala. He was able to successfully achieve this in 2019 when the CSIG contract ran out, and he did not renew it. To me, this is very clearly a highlight to the fact that Jimmy Morales is even more corrupt than we know, and he is just trying to find a way to hide it so that an organization like CSIG can't go digging deeper to find it. The current president won the election in 2020 and is set to be president until 2024. This was Alejandro Giamatay. He was in power when COVID hit the nation, and this rocked the economy. Guatemala is one of the slowest countries in the world to recover from the effects of COVID-19. However, outside of the issues with COVID, Giamatay had a relatively successful presidency until 2023. In 2023, which is the year of this recording, countrywide protests have gripped the nation once again after the government released statements that showed corruption and possible tampering in the earlier 2023 elections. As of October, this nation is currently in a pro-democracy versus government struggle. The people called for the resignations of many government officials, which have been called for by demonstrations that have happened in the streets. And on top of this, Guatemalan hackers have executed cyber attacks against the government in a pro-democracy stance to challenge them in ways they haven't been before. The protests have not ended as of the day of this recording, which is October 27th. And in just under three decades since the civil war has ended, Guatemala has successfully turned things around. Guatemala currently has the largest economy in Central America and has attained a medium level of development despite being an impoverished country less than 30 years ago. Guatemala today is one of the most beautiful countries in the Western Hemisphere and has allowed the country to break into tourism despite a lot of political instability that has not yet been solved. The other issues that challenge the nation are rural poverty, lack of education, and poor medical facilities in the indigenous regions. But despite all this, Guatemala seems to be on the uptake. They have democratic issues, they have things that are bad, but over the last 30 years, year over year, they've gotten a little bit better, even after bad years like COVID and 2020, where things went down. They've gone up, they've gone down, but the overall arc is still turning up, which is something you want to see. That's true for the economy, for lifespan, for education, all those things. But, of course, there's issues right now that need to be solved, and if they don't, it will ruin something much larger. But I have no doubt the Guatemalans will be the ones to solve it. And that brings us to the end, where I was like to leave it with a takeaway or mindset we can grab from learning this history. And specifically with Guatemala, I want to say that it is, I want to say that lesson is, take whatever life throws at you, no matter how bad it is, and then still go forward. It's a very basic thing, but I think this one applies very well, because this is a country where there's a huge population of indigenous people that 
have Maya blood and have been dealing with things for hundreds of years at this point. Since the 1500s, the Spanish have been encroaching here and pushed them away from the land that they had lived on forever. Then from there, these same people survived the times of slavery, indentured servitude. They survived wars that the Spanish caused. They survived Central America. They survived the Mexican Empire. Over and over, they've been through different things. Throughout the 18 and 1900s, there was abuses that went up and down from things like slavery to the government literally attacking and executing indigenous people and anything in between. So these people have since then started to stand up for themselves, fight hard whenever they could. And even when it was way back when, the Quechi people were still representing Guatemala and fighting against Spain. So I say that you can look at that and take that in for yourself because these people never backed down. And no matter how bad the abuses got, the genocides of indigenous people, the abuses against them, the laws against them, the people always understood that these were bad, mourned what they had to, but they still stepped forward and stepped up. No matter how bad things got, they still pushed forward. And I say you should pull that away from this history because these people are going through something very, very deep and serious. And I don't know if it's possible that anyone listening can be going through something that quite serious, which is direct ethnic attacks against this people group, which is the Maya, the other indigenous groups, and more. But if you are, I very much hope you can listen to this lesson either way, which is to take all of it, face it, and push forward. Because the Maya, since the classic period all the way up through the modern age, where they are a huge population of this country, have pushed forward, fought hard, and gone through it. But they've still stepped forward and tried to solve whatever was going on no matter what. And I say, you can definitively do that too, because whatever your scenario is, if you are still drawing breath, and whatever it is hasn't officially finished you off, which would obviously be true if you're listening to this, then you just have to step forward. You have to keep pushing on, no matter how long it takes, no matter what your path towards healing and growth look like, no matter what it is, you can face it. You can get through it. And I have no doubt that's true, because I've had things, the world has had things, and Guatemala's had things. And everyone that I just said has pushed through their stuff to some degree, and I believe you can too. And with that being said, I'm just going to say goodbye. I'm very glad you guys were here. I very much enjoyed doing this one. Guatemala was one I was able to go really deep on because coverage for all the governors and all that is really present, and even their history dating pretty far back. We're lucky enough to have a civilization like the Maya exist so we can understand what these people were doing at this time and what they've continued to do throughout their history. So this was a fun one, and I'm very glad you guys were here. So... I'm just going to say bye, and one more time, my name is Reese Rylinski, this is Young History, and that was Guatemala. You guys have a good one.